hey, good morning, Brookside. Good to see you. I uh, hope you're having a great, uh, great weekend. Um, what, a, what a fun morning for us with Go Teams launching. And, and then also, um, I just want to make sure you're aware, Wednesday night, we're going to be gathering in this place in our auditorium and, and having a night of worship. And uh, just so excited for that. Those nights are really becoming special to us as a church. And so I'd encourage you, mark your calendar. We've called this one immeasurably more. And uh, we've called it that because that's the very thing that we're asking God to do. We're saying, God, would you do immeasurably more in our midst? God, would you do immeasurably more? Maybe for you, you would long for God to show up in your, your own personal life, maybe in your job, in, in your career, or maybe in a relationship. Or even when we think about our impact as a church, um, we're saying, God, immeasurably more. That's what our heart's desire is. And you know what's really fun is this. God longs to do immeasurably more, doesn't he? He's that kind of a good God. And so for us to be able to come together and press in um, Wednesday night, um, would encourage you to uh, come. That's going to be just a lot of fun. Hey, I want to share a story with you that caught my attention this week. And really, it brought me a lot of joy. And so it's fun to celebrate these kinds of things with you. As you know, um, our care center uh, will be having its grand opening on November 19th. It's coming right up. And then on the 20th, it'll be open for business for the very first time. So we're excited about that. If you're newer to Brookside, our care center is the building that we were just able to build on the other side of the hallway behind us here. And what it does is it's going to provide clothing to kids in the foster care system. Those many, many kids will be blessed. And what we've seen already is that this care center has been a huge blessing to us, hasn't it, church? God has done something in us just by being able to, to fund it and build it and, and get everybody rallied around it. But now we're about to see that thing impact our community, which is even more exciting. Um, but I wanted to tell you this. Two of our students, Elijah and, and Jarvis, they uh, had birthdays recently. And instead of asking for gifts uh, for their birthdays, they asked for cash donations, which sounds like something that a student would do, a cash donation, right? But they said, hey, we would love our cash donations then to go to. And they said, hey, would you, instead of getting us a present this year, we want to buy clothing so that we can provide clothes for these kids that are going to come and, uh, and need clothing from our care center. And so get this, these two students raised 700 bucks. Isn't that awesome? And in addition to that, you know, they've been praying for these kids in the foster care system each and every night. And so Elijah and Jarvis, we just want to say to you, way to go. They couldn't wait to get to the cashier line and just tell the cashier, hey, this is what we're doing. This is what we're about. And this is what our church is doing. So anyway, um, your story inspires us. And so let's give those guys a hand. Thank God for that. Yeah. You know, it's, it's stories like that that remind me that it's the small things, isn't it? It's the things that we get to do day in and day out that help people see what the heart of God is like, right? It's not rocket science. We love people, we love God, and other people notice that. And so anyway, just a, a really cool thing. Way to go, guys. Well, before we jump in this morning, would you pray with me? Uh, we're gonna get back into the book of Acts, um, but would you pray with me? And let's just ask God very expectantly this morning to do a great work. So yeah, pray with me. Lord, thank you uh, for your goodness um, to us here this morning. Father, we proclaim that. Um, Lord, you are worthy of our worship. Thank you for your grace to us, Lord. And Lord, the, the, the word that just keeps coming to my mind these days is the word more. God, we want more of you. And so, Lord, even right now in these next moments, we pray, God, would you do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine? God, I think of the person here this morning that needs hope. I think of the person here this morning that needs healing. I think of the person here this morning that needs to be reminded that their best days in you are still ahead. 
And so, Father, would you do an incredible work? And, Father, as we go through now chapter 17, I pray, Lord, that we would hear not from me, but we would hear from you. And so, Lord, we ask expectantly. Um, Church, even maybe right now with, you know, just sitting there with your hands on your lap, maybe turn your palms up just on your lap there right now and just as a sign as in, and just say to God, if, if this is true of your heart, just say, Lord, I want to receive from you today. God, I want, to, to, I want my mind to be informed and then, Lord, I want my heart to be inspired. And so, God, would you inform my mind through your teaching of your word and then would you inspire my heart? Heavenly Father, that's our prayer this morning. We love you and we thank you that you long to answer a prayer like that. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible or an app, if you want to turn with me to Acts chapter 17, we'll put these verses up on the screens as well. But Acts 17 is where we're going to um, be be landing this morning. And in this passage that we're going to be looking at today, we're going to be seeing this example. And it's an insightful example, but it's also, it's very inspiring what we see unfold in Acts chapter 17. In essence, Paul is going to give us a template for what does it look like to engage a culture that doesn't know God? What does it look like to engage a culture that doesn't know God? And I would say this morning, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, first of all, I commend you for being here. Second of all, I would say this, I think this chapter will be very helpful to you. Because the Apostle Paul is talking to a culture, and in that one that we can relate to very well, and he's answering very relevant questions that they have about God. He's talking about very real issues, things that Christians and non-Christians get hung up on. And then if you're a Christian here this morning, I think that this passage will be helpful to you. Because again, Paul is giving us this template. <clears throat> he's giving this, us this window into his life. Well, what does it mean to effectively communicate the love of God to somebody else. What does that look like? And in the context of it, and this is great for you if you're not a Christian, you're going to see he communicates so clearly the core message of the gospel. But he also, to the Christian and to the non-Christian, he communicates things, he communicates about things that really trip all of us up, the things that we can get hung up on, things that can keep us from God's best for us. You know, this week as I was preparing, there was this image that came to mind, and and I've shared this with you before. When I, when I was growing up, we spent a whole lot of time as kids at my parents' cabin. And so I kind of grew up, my brother and I, we grew up, I would say, behind a boat on water skis a whole lot of our lives. And so when we got to middle school, him and I joined a water ski team. And it was a show water ski team. And so we would do different shows in the, locally there. And then we'd travel around the Midwest to other tournaments. And, and it, was a, it was a great time. But there was one summer that I remember in particular. There was one time that our team, we were just a class C team, but I remember one year our team qualified for nationals. And so we went to Janesville, Wisconsin with all the gear and all the team and everything. And we, we, you know, we got into the competition and it was, we were class C, but it was still a big deal to be performing on, on that stage in front of that crowd. Well, here's the thing. I don't remember anything really about our performance, but I remember this. I remember as a 12-year-old, I remember sitting in the grandstands, and I remember watching this team. They were called the Janesville Rock Aqua Jays, and they were a class A team, and they were amazing. Yeah, they did stuff like that. Now, we can barefoot. You know, our our team could do that. Like 10 of us, they would put over 30 people behind one boat barefoot. I mean, just crazy kinds of stuff. And I remember sitting in the audience there at the water's edge and just being blown away. 
they would go over the jump, and it wouldn't be just one back gainer, it would be five or six, and then there'd be a, a, a person that would just stand in the middle, and all of a sudden, magically, the, all the skiers would land, and the guy wouldn't get hit. I mean, it was, it was amazing. And I remember thinking, wow. And what we saw, it blew our minds. But it also did this. I remember the next week. I remember the following week when we went back to the lake. We saw skiing differently, really differently. And I remember the week following, we saw, you know, there were things that to us before they were a barrier. Now it seemed like an opportunity. There were things before that they seemed like impossible. Now it was like, let's give it a shot. What do we have to lose? Because we've seen it, right? Now we got some serious bumps and bruises in those weeks that followed, right? But here's the thing. We got better. And we got better because we'd seen a picture of something that helped us imagine something that we hadn't imagined before. This morning when we look at Acts chapter 17, we're going to see an example that's inspiring. We're going to kind of sit on the water's edge today. And we're going to kind of look into Acts chapter 17. And I believe we're going to see some things that are going to be maybe convicting to our hearts. But I think we're going to see some things also that are inspiring to our souls. I think we're going to see things this morning that we're going to go, oh, God, would you teach me? When I read Acts 17, my eyes get big, and I think of things like this. Lord, would you teach me from this? Because Paul modeled something that was so well. Today, I want you to imagine that you're there. Today, I want you to picture, I want you to sit there, I want you to imagine. I'm in the grandstands, and I'm watching this unfold, and I want you to do it with a heart that says, God, would you inspire my mind today? God, would you move my heart today by what I read, by what we hear? So here's a little bit of the context of of where we're heading. Acts 17, we're going to start in verse 16. But here's a little bit about what's happened up to this point. If you've been absent from any of the book of Acts, let me just catch you up really quickly. Here's what's happening. By the time we get to Acts chapter 17, Paul is on his second missionary journey. Now, we know that as he's been traveling in the book of Acts, we've seen him start churches. And we know that throughout a lot of the early chapters, he's going into those churches, he's strengthening them, he's speaking to them, he's encouraging them. But as we get into the book of Acts even more, he's going out now to areas that are brand new, areas that have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're seeing Acts chapter 1, verse 8, kind of this theme verse for the book of Acts, we're seeing it come to life. We're seeing that the gospel truly is going from Jerusalem to Judea, and now it's going to the ends of the earth. In chapter 16, the gospel has crossed over into Europe. And now we know this, in 16 and then in Acts chapter 17, we see that Paul's going to cities like Philippi, Thessalonica, cities now that we know Paul later would write a letter to these cities, and that letter would be cherished by us, isn't it? Letters straight out of the New Testament, the book of Philippians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonica, Thessalonians. And so as he travels, though, know this, not only is the gospel expanding, not only are people coming to know Christ, but there's also some negative happening as well. There's division, there's hostility. Right before Paul goes to Athens, the passage that we're looking about today, when he's in Berea, he kind of has this get out of Dodge moment. He has to flee because of all the things that he's been stirring up in their midst. That brings us to Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Paul is in Athens, doesn't have his ministry team. They're back in Berea, kind of tying things up. But this is then what we read. Again, imagine that you're watching this. Imagine that you're having that water's edge grandstand moment and say to God, God, would you inspire my faith this morning? 
would you inform my mind and would you inspire my heart? So here's what it says. It says that while Paul was waiting for them in Athens. Now, let me take a quick time out and just say, this is a big deal. Athens was no small city. Athens was the place that it was, even today you could say, it's famous, right? I mean, if you go anywhere in Greece, you're probably going to go to Athens. But back in the time of Jesus, it was even more of a premier city. It was the premier city of the civilized world. It was also known as a university town. It was known as a place of great thinking. Plato and Aristotle, they came out of the city of Athens. So when you think of Athens, think of it's the meeting of the minds. Think of, of universities like Yale and Princeton and Oxford and Cambridge, all rolled into one. The life of the mind in Athens was greatly valued, a place of high education. And in that place, with that level of thinking, Christianity flourished there. And so this is what's happening, though. While all of that, you know, he's in Athens, and that's the context, that's what's happening. It says that he was greatly, Paul, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Now, I love this. Not the idols, but I love Paul's heart. I, I love this because right away, right, in the, right at the beginning of this story, we see that Paul, again, imagine you're in the grandstands, you're seeing the heart right away of a man of God. And this man of God is provoked. This man of God, he is, he is, his emotions are stirred. And we're seeing his heart. This is what happens when you see someone. And it could be a stranger or it could be someone that you love so dearly. This is what happens, though, when you see them walking down a road that you know is not going to lead them to a good place. And you just go, you say to yourself, if you know Christ, you say, I just wish they knew the God that loves them. And I wish that they would reach out to him because you know their path could be different. This is what Paul is doing. He's grieving. And one of the greatest pictures I think that we get of Jesus Christ is from Luke chapter 19. Do you remember this? Jesus is going into Jerusalem. This is just days before he would go to the cross. And as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, it says this in verse 41. It says that as he approached Jerusalem and he saw the city, he wept over it. He, he was grieved, and he said, if you, even you had only known on this day, what would bring you peace? Jesus looks at the city, and it's vast. He comes over the hill. He sees Jerusalem, and he says that he wept. Why did he weep? Why was he provoked? Why was Jesus so moved? Later, he uses language like this. They're like sheep without a shepherd. They don't know where they're going, but that's why I came. Oh, I wish that their hearts wouldn't be hard toward me. It's like watching a toddler approach a hot stove. It's like, no, right? The Apostle Paul, same thing. He looks at the city of Athens and he's distressed because he fears where their path will take them. He's doing this for a city. Now, I couldn't help but think of us. How fitting for us. I mean, think of it. We are halfway through our initiative called For the City. I mean, in this initiative, and I think this text will be so helpful for us this morning because this text will remind us that when we look at our city, we don't look at it in judgment like, ah, you know, and just bag on it. No, but we look at our city and our culture and we say this, oh, God, might it move us to compassion and love and grace, and God, might it call us to action. What we're seeing here is godly grieving from someone who's been touched by God. We're seeing here is a heart that is saying, God, your goodness has been so good to me. And God, when I see people that aren't experiencing it, oh, Lord, let it move me 
It's like when we pray prayers like this, Lord, break my heart for the things that break the heart of God. That's what Paul's having, that kind of a moment. Now, the question, too, that came to my mind as I read this was this. When I drive or when you drive down into your neighborhood or when you walk the hall of your apartment or your dorm or when you walk the hallway of, of your school, when you're around your friends, I had to ask myself the question, do I have a heart when I know the spiritual condition of what's around me, do I have a heart that grieves? Is my heart like this? Like, am I, am I moved or is it just also normal to me? that I don't even really notice? Or is my heart saying, no, 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 no. I need to be, my heart grieves. Does it distress me? Right away, though, the, I think the text asks, asks us another question, and it's this. What does our culture idolize? What does our city in particular idolize? See, Paul saw this. He saw a city full of idols. That's what distressed him and what it was doing to the city. He said another way, what does our culture, what does our culture ascribe great worth to? That, that's what an idol is. What does our culture ascribe more worth to it than it should? And maybe I can just name a few, and, and because this just wasn't just an Athens thing, is it? And maybe for us, you'd say, fill in the blank. Maybe it's success or achievement. I, I want to be the best, and there's nothing wrong with wanting to be the best and accomplishing great things. That's noble. But if it's all about you, and I just want to build my kingdom, and I want to look good, that's idolatry. Uh, it could be comfort. I just want my life to be easy. Uh, I just want to arrive and then just hit cruise. I just want, and so everything's about building my little world so that I can be comfortable. That can be an idol. Maybe it's status. How am I perceived? How do I appear? Image management. Maybe it's a relationship. Some of us can idolize our spouse. We can ask them and expect them to do things that are well beyond what God would have our spouse do, meet needs that they can never meet. We live in a culture too, don't we? It's full of idols. And Paul, he knows though this, he knows that the desire that these people have is actually from God. He knows that God put in you and he put in me and he put in them a desire to worship. But what is breaking his heart is he's saying they're putting, it in, they're putting those desires in the wrong place. They'll never be satisfied. Their longings will never be fulfilled. Your career won't do it. And he's saying that they're, they're missing it. And so it grieves him. It's, it's, Paul's like he's saying this, God created good things for you, but he did not create those good things to replace God. It's like saying, if the good things are the goal, that's idolatry. So let me give you the first, of, I think, five observations this morning. If you're taking notes, jot these five down. These are five things we can pull away from the text. The first one is this. Again, Paul's heart, number one, distress leads to action. Distress leads to action. Paul's heart is grieved, but he doesn't just stand back. And when you and I live for the city, we don't just stand back and just say things like, well, this city sure is going to hell in a handbasket. Good luck to you. We don't do that. That can't be our response to our city. It wasn't Paul's response either, but it called him to action, his heart did. Jesus didn't look just at the city of Jerusalem and say, oh, I weep over this city. If you, only you, had known on this day what would bring you peace. And then he walked away. Didn't turn around, went to a different city. No, Jesus went into Jerusalem. He was mocked and he was ridiculed. And then he went to the cross. Action. Paul 
sees, grieves, he moves forward. Verse 17, it says this. So he reasoned, he's on their level in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. And so Paul enters in, just like Jesus. I mean, I think, of, think about when Jesus was with that woman at the well. Do you remember that? Jesus is with this woman at the well. She comes and she says, Jesus, I'm thirsty. And he says, oh, well, I can give you water. Let's take care of that. But he says, I also want you to know, though, that I know that I could give you something that would take care of your thirst at a deeper level. I long for you to have that. Paul enters in. He wants to help. Paul didn't run away out of fear or hatred. He didn't also say, oh, I just want to enter in so that I can be accepted by you. That can be our idolatry. But Paul enters in because God has given him something so good. So the story continues. Look with me at verse 18. It says a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Now, the Epicureans, they were what you could call hedonists. They believed that God was distant and God did not care. And since God was distant and since God didn't really care, they had a philosophy and it was this. Live it up. Enjoy life. Just have a ball. Self-indulgence. And then there was the Stoics, and they were kind of on the other side of the pendulum, and they were all about self-restraint, all about self-restraint. So you got these two groups, and they, they're, they're debating him, it says this, that they began to debate him, and some of them asked, what is this babbler? Now for us, that's a derogatory term. If I say, hey, you're a babbler, you'd be like, geez, come on. But in their culture, it was even worse. It was like they were saying to the Apostle Paul, you're, a second mind, you're like a second-class-minded person. You're a fool. What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Now, observation number two is this, very clear in the text, I think. Number two, boldness elicits a response. Paul doesn't flee. He doesn't condemn. He doesn't even judge. He just jumps right in, but his boldness, it elicits, elicits a response. When you share the gospel, isn't this true? You should be experiencing one of two things, flack or gratitude. You're going to experience flack. Someone's going to say to you, you're a fool. Are you really that shallow? Have you seriously done your homework? You're going to receive flack. Come on, you're crazy. No more invites. Stop talking to me about this. You're out of touch. Or you're going to receive gratitude. Someone's going to say to you, thank you. I never understood this before. I love this place. Someone will say to you, thank you. I always thought that if, that if I was just good enough that God would leave me alone and that one day I hoped to be okay with him and now when I realize just how good God is, I would never want him to leave me alone. That's gratitude. Verse 19, then it says this. It says, then they took him and they brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. It's also known as, as the Mars Hill meeting. And where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. All of the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there, they spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So, so they bring Paul in. And in essence, they're interviewing Paul. I mean, you think about it. They have idols all over the place. And so what was likely happening is this. They were wondering, should we also have a statue of Jesus? We got a little bit of room still left in the temple. 
We can put him right over here. Maybe we should do that. But I think this as well. When I look at verse 19, when I think about this text, I also think of this. Observation number three, here it is. All people wonder. I, I truly believe that even, maybe I'm naive, but I believe even the hardest-hearted person, I believe that there are times when they look at God's amazing creation. I believe that there are times when they see a circumstance in their life that they can't explain with reason. I believe that there are times when they come and they find out, I thought that this would satisfy and this would satisfy and this would satisfy, and it just left me asking for more. I believe that all people come to a place where they wonder, can I know God and does he know me? I think all people, all people wonder. Those are our stories. I mean, think about it for a second. So many of you, you came even maybe into this place and you wondered, and you asked questions, and you came and you said, I'm not satisfied with X, Y, and Z. It's just not cutting it for me. What is life truly about? I love this. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 says this, that God has put eternity in, into the human heart. God makes people wonder. And this is why you and I, we don't give up on people, do we? We can't. And so what does Paul do? He steps into their culture. But again, stay with the text here. Notice what he does differently. If you look at verse chapter 17, verse 2, you see that Paul's talking to the Jews. He goes into the synagogue, and what does Paul do? Paul uses his Bible, chapter and verse, right, to talk to the Jews about, about, about God. That's how he interacted with them. But when we get later on in the Areopagus, Paul doesn't start with the scriptures. Paul starts with their questions, and that's something we can learn from. Paul knew their culture. Paul knew, how do I meet them where they are at? He engaged them. Watch this, verse 22. It says, then Paul, what did he do? He stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and he said, people of Athens, I see that you are, in, I see, I'm noticing. I'm not oblivion to you. I'm not just out judging who you are. I see that in every way you are very religious. That would have been a compliment to them. For I have walked around and I have looked carefully at your objects of worship. I have even found an altar with this inscription. To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. Paul sees that their culture, he knows it is polytheistic. They worship so many different gods. So many different gods. And what he says to them is this. Even in the midst of all of these gods, you've got like a just-in-case God. You have a God just in case you missed one, that you call the unknown God. It's like your backup plan. And I want, though, to do this. I want to proclaim to you who this unknown God is. So verse 24 goes like this. And I just have to imagine, again, get in the text, everybody. You're at the edge of the water. You're in the grandstands. You're saying to God, God, teach me, God, inspire me. I think one thing we can't miss here, I would imagine that the Apostle Paul, his heart was moved right now because this is his moment. This is the moment when he's going to tell them about the God who's changed his life. And so he says this, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and, and he does not live in temples built by human hands. I mean, look around, everybody. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. 
And he marked out their appointed times in history and and the boundaries of their lands. And God did this so that they would seek him. And perhaps they would reach out to him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. And that might be the one reason why you're in church this morning, just to hear that very simple truth, that God is not far from any one of us. I mean, imagine his heart in this moment. God is not far from you. In a world, in a culture of idols. For in him we live and we move and we have our being as some of your own poets, and he knew their poets. Again, be inspired by that. He knew their culture. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Paul knows who they are. He meets them in that place. And what does he do, though? He deconstructs their view of God. He says things like, you know, you, you worship this God that he's, you know, you build your God by human hands, but God can't be built by human hands. We, we actually are God's offspring, so we don't create God and then worship that God. And then there's not just a God for the moon, and there's not just a God for the sun, and there's not just a God for the rich, and for the poor, and for the Greeks, and for the Romans. No, Paul was saying, there's one God, and we are his offspring. And and, and that God, Paul would say, he's changed my life. Now in Athens, know this, that they had servants. So this is so applicable. I mean, it it, it makes so much sense why Paul said things the way he did. They had servants in Athens at the temple's that would actually bring food before a golden image. So they would try to feed this image that they were worshiping. And not only would they feed it, but these servants, they would clean this idol. They would make sure that it was kind of in a sense that it was bathed. And what Paul is saying is this, if your God can't feed himself and he can't bathe himself, are you sure that he's really a God? Are you sure? Because the God I know, we are, I'm his offspring. He, it means he created me. And he didn't just create me. He didn't just create you. He created everything. Everything. Again, Paul, I believe, is just proclaiming to them, this is who God is. And then he says this, verse 29. He says, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone an image made by human design and skill. It's not that we make God. And I'm inspired by this again because Paul knows his culture, but he doesn't run from it. He doesn't give them the hand of hatred. Instead, he engages with it because God's been so good to him. Because he knew I didn't deserve to hear, but God, you were gracious to me. Observation number four, here it is. Idolatry opens the door to repentance. Idolatry opens the door to repentance. Don't miss this, what Paul does here. As he deconstructs their view of God, he also, he just doesn't leave them there. And for you this morning, you might be in a place where you'd say, I have an idol. I I give so much time and energy and devotion to this, and I'm banking on it, or I have expectations of him or her that they'll never be able to meet. And I'm putting too much stock in X, Y, and Z when I'm trying, when I know only God can fill the need that I have, that's idolatry. And again, Paul doesn't leave us there. He takes us to a place. He deconstructs their thoughts about God. But right now we're going to see he builds them a new house, though. Here it is, verse 30. It says, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Simply means this. 
he, he commands all people everywhere to turn. Like you were going this direction, now you go this way. For he has set a day when he will judge the whole world with justice by the man he has appointed, Jesus Christ. And he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So Paul is saying this, there was a day when God overlooked such ignorance. But since that day, Jesus Christ has come. And you can worship this thing that you've created and we can relate to that. Or you can say, you know what, I'm going to worship the only one that will satisfy me. I'm going to worship the only one. Because one day God will judge, God will bring justice to the world at an appointed time. And you, cannot, you and I can say, you know what, I'm going to worship the one that was dead and came back to life. I mean, there were people that had questions in that environment. But there were also people that said, I'm going to choose Jesus because a dead man came back to life. I don't have all my questions answered, but I have enough now, Right? And what Paul is saying is this, I urge you, don't stand before God and give an account for your own sin. You do not want to do that. But Paul says, I urge you, would you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Would you allow him to be your savior? Observation number five, here it is. Truth leads to decision. Truth leads to decision. Look with me at verse 32. Paul says this, or this was, when they had heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. So this is the response. We're going to see three of them here. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, hey, we want to hear you on this subject again. Response number two. We got sneering and then we got more questions. And at that, Paul, it says he left the council. But some of the people, they became followers of Paul and they believed. Among them was Dionysus. Uh, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Three responses. Some sneered. Some said, we knew you were crazy. You are. Get out of here. Quit talking about your God. We, we understand that you're moved, but quit. And then there are others that said, and maybe this is even you this morning. I need to hear more. I still have questions. Help me understand this. We invite that. And then there are others that said this, I've seen enough, I've heard enough, I don't have all the answers, but I want my sin to be forgiven, and I believe, I saw that man, I, I saw him before he went to the cross, I saw, I knew that he died on the cross, and then I saw him after that, I'm in. That's all I need to say. I believe, I want more of him. Now know this, anytime that you and I share, you'll probably get a response Sometimes it's flack, sometimes it's gratitude, sometimes people will sneer, sometimes people will say, I have more questions. But the thing that we cannot do is this, is not share because we're afraid of the, the, the first responses. We can't, we can't not share because someone might sneer, they might mock. We can't not share because someone might have more questions. We have to cling to the fact that there will be people, just like in Paul's day, that they said, enough is enough, I'm in, I need Jesus Christ. So five observations. Let me review them. Number one was this. Distress leads to action. Paul looks at these people and his heart is moved and it takes us to the question, are, is our heart moved by the culture around us? Number two, boldness elicits a response. If you never get a response to your faith, you're probably not being bold enough with it, right? Your, your idol actually might be acceptance. Number three, all people wonder. That's why we never give up on people. That's why we'll always be a church that's wanting to live for the city and the globe and the world. Because why? Because to the stranger to our from from the stranger to our family member, they're people, and we love people. All people wonder. 
Idolatry opens the door to repentance. That's not only for the, the people in Athens. That's for me. And that's for you, right? We say this morning, God, what idols do I have in my life? Lord, lead me to do the right thing with them, to repent, to turn. And then truth leads to decision. I want to drive you to two questions to close. The first one is this. Ask this question. Say to the Lord, Lord, do I have any idols in my life? Lord, are there any things that when you look at my life, I'm just putting so much stock in this or that, that it takes away my affection for you. God, you gave me a good thing, but I've turned the good thing into a bad thing because I've replaced that thing with, with you, not with you. I've, I've got no room for you. This morning, I think we come to the Lord and we just very humbly say, God, I repent of those things. I give you those things. And then the second question is this. How does what you and I have learned in Acts chapter 17, how does it shape our thoughts and how does it shape our actions? Like, I believe that it should change the way I drive down into our neighborhood. I believe it should change the way that I think about what God has given me. If you never receive any mocking, if you never receive any pushback, you're probably too timid. Maybe even we need to go to certain people, even maybe this week, and say, I'm sorry, I've never shared with you. Like, I love you. I care about you. And there's something that's really shaped my life, and I think it would shape yours too. And so here it is. What would that look like? And then maybe you're here this morning and you would just say this. You can relate to the people that were debating with Paul. But maybe you're here today and you would say this. I've got enough questions answered. And there was a dead man that rose from the grave. And the scripture continually points back to that. And it's historically accurate. There's all sorts of facts around his resurrection. And so if he claimed to be God, I will put my trust in him. I will believe that he will forgive my sins. And so let's, um, let's pray this morning to that end. Yeah, pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for who you are. And this morning we just say to you, Father, thank you for a passage like Acts 17. Lord, thank you that your scriptures can teach us, they can encourage us, they can inspire us, they can help us think differently about something that in a way, in a way we've never thought before. God, help us to take our game to the next level because of what we've heard in Acts 17. And then, Lord, for the person here this morning that doesn't know you, um, right now even, would you just say to the Lord, I put my trust in you. I don't want to stand and give an account for my sin someday and have that account be me the one that you're looking at. I want you to look at Jesus Christ. And so I put my faith in him because he can cover me he can cover me so that, Lord, you, God, you see Jesus Christ, not me. And so I put my faith in what he has done. Lord, we love you. God, inspire your church today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen and amen.